You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. Today, we have the honor of interviewing Robert Drummond. He's the CEO of Next Tier Oilfield Solutions. And I've had the pleasure personally of working with Robert and knowing him. And I have to say he is a not just a great CEO, but a great person to be around. He's been in the industry for over 30 years with a long career at Schlumberger and then became a CEO over at Key. And then he had the opportunity to be a part of the CNJ and Keen merger which is now next year. So we're just really excited to have Robert on. He has an amazing story. I think you're really going to find it very interesting how he even got into oil and gas. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much for coming on today, Robert. Thanks to you two for having me. I'm honored to be here. And I'm very impressed at what you two do, by the way. I mean, this is in the back office work for you. This is after hours and just a couple of people adding value to our industry. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. Well, we're all excited to get to know you a little bit more. And so tell us who Robert Drummond is. What was life like growing up? Where are you from? Well, I hope it's not boring, but I I grew up in Alabama. It was a really family-centric environment, you know, based on Christian values. I was the oldest of four children, very fortunate to have unselfish parents who gave me a lot of freedom. And, you know, I spent most most of my youth doing various jobs and playing a lot of team sports and spending, you know, as much time outside as I could and and studying because although I had a very fun youth and spent a lot of time outdoors, I had aspirations to move out of Alabama and move into, you know, bigger parts of the world. And, you know, over that period, I feel I've been very lucky and I have a huge appreciation for my position and and the world and the environment that we live in. Everything about the environment is just, I feel lucky be part of this industry. Well, Robert, you know, we know that your dad went through a lot, you know, while you were growing up and you, you talked to us about, you know, his experiences and how he had to actually get into mining due to you wanting to stay in the state for your football development, which you actually ended up getting a football scholarship. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like, you know, experiencing that with your father and then also, you know, why you decided to study what you did in college? Well, thank you. Yes, I did decide to study engineering. I was a pretty good student in math and science in high school. And engineering seemed like a degree that had a lot of potential career paths. And and I was very open-minded. I have to admit, I I was a little bit motivated by money. (laughs) And, you know, I I was likely to end my college career with a a negative net worth. So (laughs) choosing engineering was not difficult for me. But choosing which discipline was more was a bit more complicated. You know, back in those days, 1980, call it, oil price was near historic lows when you consider, you know, adjusting for inflation. So I was able to quite, kind of quickly look at petroleum engineering and see that there was a huge demand for students at that time, and it paid well, <laughs> and it was outside, and I, I like doing all those things. So I decided to enroll at the University of Alabama's mineral engineering department, which included the option to be a mining engineer or a petroleum engineer. So, you know, you had to make a choice before your junior year. And my father, kind of wise man, he was working at the time in a coal mine as a, as a supervisor or manager there and invited me 
during the summer before my junior year to come and tour the facility. So I, you know, I showed up and dutifully on time and was introduced to a supervisor who was going to be my guide or escort through an undermine, underground mining tour. So, you know, we got suited up and we took an elevator hundreds of feet below the ground, you know, into the pitch black, into a tunnel that was maybe five foot tall and boarded a train, a little train that took us another thousands of yards into yet another network of tunnels that again, were only lit by the light that you had on your, on your helmet and began to walk in what was then about 18 inches of water and a five foot roof. So you were very challenged to need a technique to be able to do that. And obviously I didn't have it. And my escort did. And the guy ended up getting way far ahead of me and we'd be coming to network intersections and his light would almost be out of sight for me. So it was very scary to say the least. And, you know, bottom line, I got to the coalface safely and we, we watched the mining process for a little while and then we made the trek back out. And, you know, I realized along the way that I was getting a condensed education on mining. That When I got to the surface, I said, thanks, Dad, I'm a petroleum engineer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. I'm sure the whole time you're like, I am not going to do this for a living. I do not want to be here. I mean, I'm nothing against coal mining, but it definitely is a for not the faint of heart. You know, maybe I wouldn't have been down underground all the time, but I do have a huge appreciation for the men and women who do that. And Jamie, you mentioned the uh, football scholarship. I just want to be for the record. I was a walk-on at the University of Alabama. <laughs> Quickly figured that I better get more deep into the books because physically I just wasn't going to be able to make. You weren't going to be in the NFL anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. But I had a good time. I learned a lot. But at the end of the day, I was uh, I was on the team more than I was a player. That's hey, awesome. but you were on the team, so that's pretty awesome. Exactly. So tell us, how did you get in oil and gas? So obviously, you studied petroleum engineering. You mentioned that there was somewhat of a downturn. Oil prices were not. It's not like everybody was hiring. So what was your first job into the oil and gas industry, and how did you go about getting it? Well, you know, as I mentioned, I decided on petroleum engineering in the early 80s during a boom time. I mean, it was on the back end of a big of a big boom in the United States and all over the world, really. And I had not really considered the cyclical nature of the business when I made that move. And by the time I graduated in 1983, the oil and gas business and companies were really no longer even coming to campus to interview. So I was in the process of studying for finals and, you know, it's been a long day. And I said I was to take a break. I grabbed a Schlumberger application in the middle of the night, filled it out and sent it to Slumberjay's office in New Orleans and applied for a field engineering position. And I think my application happened to land on the guy's desk at just the right time. And he sent me an interesting note back, say, if you happen to be in the area in the next few days, drop by for an interview. And, and New Orleans is not exactly in Alabama. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> like, I just dad. happened to be here. Yeah, I just happened. Casually. I made that happen. I borrowed my dad's vehicle and I drove down and, and, and I went to the interview and it turned out, I think that I just happened to be in the right place at the right time that day. I got the offer and I was fortunate. There was a time when not many graduates did get, get, get an offer straight out of school into the industry. But I would argue that at that point, I didn't even really realize that my education was only just beginning. 
mm-hmm. when I stepped out of college into our industry. But pretty fun journey, and I've been pretty much at it ever since. I think, though, you missed one, one part of that that I definitely want you to touch on, which was how you actually got to New Orleans in your dad's vehicle. Well, you know, it is a long story. I, I was driving to New Orleans, which is about a five-hour drive, and along the way, my vehicle uh, stalled out, and I was on the side of an interstate with a suit on that didn't have a lot of slop in my schedule for getting to the interview, and I went through a process of getting somebody stopped and helped me, by the way, and that gentleman, who I wish I knew his name today, helped me get the vehicle repaired, <laughs> he and I. And we got to, I got, I walked into the interview kind of sweating about two minutes before it was to start and told the guy actually the story. And I think maybe because of that and the fact that I was interviewing for a field engineer job, he said, I think this guy might be the one. So oh, yeah. Maybe if you can handle, destiny. if you can handle being on the side of the road with a suit on and just like freaking out and just getting the job done, you're like, you're a perfect field engineer. That's literally what a field engineer is. Well, I've been even as a field engineer, I've been lucky to have a lot of good operators around me in case any of them are listening because they, they would probably say that they carried me in the field to be a lot true. <laughs> so, well, you've got to have those teammates, right? You can't always do it all. Oh, yeah. Operators, <laughs> we owe our life to the operators who knew exactly what to do when you first started as a field engineer. They basically run everything for you. But so they tell do, us and they know that every field engineer doesn't know anything anyway. So, <laughs> exactly. What was being a field engineer back in the day look like, like especially a wireline field engineer back then? Well, it's a fun question for me because, you know, a wireline field engineer 35 years ago was a very challenging role like it is today, but it's also very rewarding. You know, you were immediately inserted into a very competitive training environment as a junior field engineer. You know, you're talking about classroom and on the job training, you know, it's about a year process. Attrition's high. Mm-hmm. You know, responsibility comes quickly. And the rewards, though, are there if you're up to it. And as an open hole wireline field engineer in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, you were a one man. There was usually only one engineer, and you had a crew of two or three that worked with you. But, you know, your, your job was to gather petrophysical data on newly drilled wells before the occasion had been set. And that was a process that only a certain amount of time that could be done. So you were in a position sometimes to be up many days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you ask about some parts of the bit of it. What was like the craziest one? I would say there was a time that I did three days straight without sleep, trying to log a well where we were having difficulty getting the, the tools down hole and we were oh, getting man. stuck in and out. It was just one of those jobs you go, like, oh, my gosh. Can't believe I went to college to do this, but you know you survive things like that, and and you go, you know what? It's very rewarding, but I could not go do it again at this age. As it's a it's a young person's game for sure, but they're a lot better today than than we were probably back then. But I have no regrets for stepping into an environment that made me mature very quickly. Yeah, no, I definitely think back in the day that's where the real wireline field engineers existed. Not now, in my opinion. You guys had it really hard. Like even I would always ask, like, you didn't have cell phones back then. How would you get called in the middle of the night? Did you have to be in your house with like one of those phones or even like technology wise, like your laptops? Like I've seen they're like big bulky. Everybody walked around with these big things. And 
it's just so weird to even think like I couldn't even find a rig on Google Maps. Okay. That's what I was about to say. Like, how did you even I'm find like, location? Right? Yeah, yeah, it must have been so completely different. Like, if I had a problem in the field, I could text someone. Hey, have you seen this? Look, here's a picture of my log. Da-da. Like, how did you guys handle that, you know, back then? Well, I would argue that was probably one of the more challenging things. Offshore, they really didn't have any phone except one that was in the company man's office. So you may go offshore with what would appear to be a one-day job and not come home for two weeks and – I was newly married and I'd go offshore and then I wouldn't come back. And I was going, Oh my gosh, we hadn't been married long enough. I hope she's still there when I get back. (laughs) (laughs) She was, she'd been loyal the whole time, but we would have to use radio tower communication or in many cases, sometimes none really. And it would go days. We would gather data and then transmit it in via a network. They used to call a dart, which was, antennas that were directionally aimed at towers placed throughout the Gulf of Mexico. It took longer to transmit the data than it did to acquire it. So mm-hmm. you log it for a day and then you transmit it for a day. You just never could quite get finished. It seemed like it was so different today. And, and you guys are so much smarter than we were. We just, we just had to you know, just stay out there until we got it done and then hand deliver the stuff in half the time. Wow. But everything's getting is everything's changing and it, I think it's all for the better the engineers of the day got a lot of good 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 tools and resources at their hands well y'all were the pioneers so I mean the knowledge that you know your generation has is something that's untouched that you know we really can't duplicate because today we have so much technology so you know if it wasn't for that then we wouldn't be where we are today anyways so we really appreciate it but Team what <laughs> what I think is interesting too is you ended up going into a sales role, which had to have been like night and day from going from the field. And I know you mentioned that there was some some definitely differences that you experienced. So can you talk about what like the biggest challenge was for you when you moved into sales? Well, look, you know, as a young man moving from field engineer to sales, like was a huge relief, or or at least I thought that initially. <laughs> I mean, the idea of moving to New Orleans, all the things they had to do. I got a, I got a nice expense account. I was, you know, a pretty unwealthy guy as a young man. And this just looked like some kind of unbelievable scenario opportunity. So I quickly jumped it, jumped at it. But I quickly realized I had a lot to learn about the perspective of our customers. You know, what we had been doing and was very internal focus. We were got there to do a job. And quickly you learn in sales that it's important we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that position gave me the opportunity to learn all that. You know, it was my job to make sure our services met, were meeting the needs of the customer. So I had to be embedded with the customer so that I could understand what they were trying to achieve and make sure I gave them the information that they needed to make the right decisions for their company. So, you know, today I consider the role I had in sales to be one of the most important parts of my career path. And in, especially in preparation for being a CEO, because, your perspective as a field engineer is very limited and your perspective of each position you pick up along the way gives you ability to see things in a much broader scope. Mm. So I love that job. It was fun. That's awesome. So I know you mentioned earlier on that you played sports throughout your childhood and obviously also when you got to college. How has sports helped you in becoming the leader that you are today? Because there are a lot of qualities of playing with a team or being solo can you talk to us a little bit about kind of like how sports have shaped you into even being a CEO today? Well, I do appreciate that question because I did grow up playing a lot of team sports and enjoyed and benefited 
from many, you know, influential coaching mentors that focused on some of the fundamentals, perhaps, you know, that are good in life as well. But in sports, I did reach a potential limit, obviously, when I reached the University of Alabama football, I realized that, you know, I wasn't, I had reached my ceiling. (laughs) But I'd say the three most important lessons I learned through that whole process, young and even to this day, was that, you know, three things I'd say, you know, if everyone buys in to the objective of the team or the goal, that's the way you have the best chance of succeeding or winning or whatever, you know, you're trying to achieve, you know, and if everybody does that and are committed to it, achieving the goal is possible almost no matter what it is and that it will provide rewards, not only for the team, but opportunities for rewards for the individuals. And I think that that's one thing that you can take into the business world. And the last one being, if, you know, I think if you work harder and smarter than your peer group and you just keep doing that all the time, you're going to continuously differentiate, maybe in my case, only very slightly, but continue to differentiate. And then over time, that builds up to give you more, more opportunities if you choose to take them. Mm. So I think sports, I can see that. And people who have been in team sports, you know, my daughters, I can see it. I can see it in anybody who has done a bit of that. So I'm a proponent of that. No, I played sports in college and throughout my life, I guess, so far. So I totally can relate. And I do think that it had a huge impact on not just, you know, your competitive ability too, but also to bring that team atmosphere and understand the needs of other people, because you constantly have to think of that when you're part of a team. So we appreciate you sharing that. You know, one thing that- coaching mentors as well, I'll bet, huh? Yes. Yeah, for sure. You know, another interesting thing about your career is you were with Schlumberger for 31 years, and through that time, you really were just like North America-based, which is actually not very common if, like, I don't really know anybody else at all that, and Maciel could probably, you know, talk to that point as she still, you know, she works for Schlumberger, that just stay in North America. But you were able to not only stay in North America, but become the president of North America. You know, there is hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, work for Schlumberger. And to have that kind of career and specifically a career in North America alone, what do you think kind of like made you stand out in that crowd? Well, I did have to deal with that through my entire career. And many of my peers sometimes pointed that out. And I would just say, just for my own little defense, just for sucking this, I never really turned down a job to go anywhere else. But Either it had to be one or two things for me, either, either, either it was going to be a benefit or a drawback, and I chose to focus on it being, allowing me to have a chance to be an expert in North America, or not an expert, probably a stretch, but <laughs> but certainly extremely focused in that area. But you're right, you know, I was, I was part of a results-oriented organization, and it's full of talented people, as you know, Matthew, and it's governed both by meritocracy, or it certainly was through my 31-year career, and you know, I simply tried to stay focused on the local business goals and more or less on my own aspirations. You know, I had them, but I was more focused on the team. And I think that was some of the, what we just talked about. But trust the system to work because there's succession planning in place for companies like that. And I found that the management team above me, I mean, they were very busy and they're dedicated to do the same thing. So they were motivated to promote and surround themselves with people that would help them make their own targets or targets for a company. So bottom line is I tried to take the position, one, to survive the cycles of the business, but also to add value to the team, you know, and 
whatever way I could and just kind of stay focused and let them move me around the way they wanted to. And, and most of the time I went to, I went to a number of my jobs not thinking that it was the right move for me, but it turned out to be that way. And somebody there was helping build uh, my career development. And, you know, I just sum it up by saying it's a little bit the classic team focus versus, versus individual storyline. It worked for me. And, you know, I think it, Probably depends on what organization you're in, but in, in that one at that time, you know, I was very pleased with it. The last thing I'd say, though, is, and I think it was kind of an important one because I noticed these traits in you too, and that is that, you know, beyond, you know, beyond the time I spent inside the walls of the company, I did a lot of networking in the business, inside the customer community, inside the community in general, and that gave me a yet another perspective on the business, not just the customers, not just ours, but peers and vendors and legislators and everything else. And I'd say I did a little bit more than that than most of my peers did inside the company. So I think over time, I became known as a little bit more maybe than the next person. Yeah. I would just say that's the storyline for me pretty much. And I still think today that networking and being involved in the community and the business around where you work is a key component for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. I agree. Just the opportunity of networking and just like, like you said, not just staying within those four walls of the company, but, you know, expanding into the industry and just being known. It gives, just, it gives you so much opportunity. And like you said, stand out compared to those who don't, you know. That's exactly awesome. right. So as you were going through your career and you were obviously moving up and getting promotions, and I'm sure at some point you were like, I'm high potential. I could tell, you know, I'm getting all these big titles. Was there ever a point where you thought, okay, I'm going to be the next CEO of Schlumberger? Or was that never a goal for you? Well, I got to be honest. You know, I never aspired. Or you didn't really. want that $28 million a year? Yeah, what I love. <laughs> Come no, on. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I had aspirations around the money, but maybe, look, I would just say, I was just, I never expected to become CEO, you know, especially in the first part of my career. I mean, I was just focused on surviving the stickality of the business, mm-hmm. trying to differentiate my performance a little bit. And I mean, I was surrounded by a lot of really smart and good people and I could see that, but, you know, also had, I had enough confidence to say that over time, you know, in continuous learning effort, I was moving up the curve and I began to realize that perhaps, you know, I did have the ability to seek higher responsibility. But inside Schlumberger, you know, it's a global company. And as you mentioned earlier, I had been geographical bound for whatever reason for a while. And that's, it would be very problematic, I would say, for to be even aspiring to do that there. I got respect for Olivier and everybody else who's done that job because the sun never really sets on it. You got operations all over the planet. But being the CEO in companies like I'm here at Next Year, blessed to be a part of, that, I mean, I think my skill set that I picked up along the way has helped me prepare for that. So, you know, I've been only as good as the people that I've been with and been around me, and I have benefited my entire career from the team. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I got there, but I never really thought I was headed that way. <laughs> no, that's that's a great, you know, way of looking at it. And the thing, too, is, you know, we understand and we've had a lot of people that with the background that have come on to the podcast of being with either Slumberjay or like one of the majors for a long time. And then they ended up leaving like yourself. And they always say it's like they're leaving their family. You know, how did that 
feel when you left? Because I mean, you did have a 31, you know, year career there. And you know, what was the process like? Like, was it a year long process where you thought, you know, I'm at my 30th year, maybe now I need to look at something else? Or was it kind of like a quick, like all of a sudden you got this opportunity and it felt right and you left? Well, no, you know, honestly, I've said before, I've been blessed, been part of that organization. And it was a continuous education process, but you can begin to see where your potential ends in any company, probably. So you start looking at that and balancing your own skill set and looking at, you know, you've been networking, you're looking at the external world and you say, you know, where, where could you fit? How do you stack up versus the competitors in that arena? And I began to make that decision probably a year, year and a half before I actually decided to move. You know, you don't want to get in a position where you're starting to slack off on your role. You, get, you owe it to the organization you work for to be 100%. I think I could say I did that. But I, I did begin to be to have a lot of opportunities. I think some of that was linked to the networking previously. But it was a hard move, obviously, to leave what had been such an important part of your life for 31 years. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in a place personally to try it. And it allowed me to take that risk as, you know, as a young man. I use young man relative and, you know, the definition of young man continues to change yeah. year to year. <laughs> I think age is just a number. So I think you're young till you're about 100. So I'm good. <laughs> that, that, that's my thought on it. But no, I mean, that's very true. And, and you got the opportunity and, and you went for it. And, you know, I think what's really interesting about your whole, the whole story is that, you know, you not only stayed in North America, but then you were able to also create, you know, where we're at today at Next Tier, you know, which is another specifically North America company as well. And, you know, very successful in that range. And to be able to do that, you had a very challenging thing that you had to put together, which was the merger between Keen and CNJ to create Next Tier. And as I have experienced, and you know, you know, there's definitely two different cultures when we when we came together, when the two companies came together, and different visions. And I know that we brought that into one, but, you know, knowing what you know now when that process happened, was there anything that you would have changed when you developed Star Next Year? And mentioned too, that Next Year was developed like right on the cusp of, you know, the next year was COVID. So it's definitely hasn't been, you know, the easiest process. You're, you're right, Jamie. I, think, I appreciate the question. Look, you know, the process of a merger of equals is very interesting from my seat and, you know, the, the challenge, it's a very challenging thing to manage and, you know, our business community and oil field services or EMP and oil and gas in general, it's a small, it's a small world. And you, you know, you're likely to know a lot of people of your competitors and of your customers. And you know, between C&J and King, we knew each other. I mean, the management team, we knew a lot of each other. And you think about in both, te- both teams are very good. And as a CEO, you got to manage, you know, the cultural and people aspects this process and it's the by far the most important part and the most challenging and you know when you're making personnel decisions on a merger with that context of trying to get to the the future culture think about the individual talent level which was abundant on both sides but also how they would come together and work as a unit and how that might work as a team you know back to my earlier earlier comments so we tried to use that in the decision-making process, but as you pointed out, you know, we quickly moved into COVID and things kind of got blurry between what you were doing as an integration of two companies with having to size ourselves for what was the most 
arguably most catastrophic decline in activity in the history of oil field services over a period of time. For example, in U.S. land, you know, there were like 330 plus frack fleets working in Q1 of 2020, and then Q2 is down sub 50. And we were, you know, you always have various business plans in place, you know, worst case scenarios so you can adjust your cost to potential things that might occur. But in the heart of that downturn, we began to look at zero revenue scenarios. And you think about a company that's made up, you know, of your, your cost structure in a service company, a large portion of it is related to compensation. So it was a very challenging environment. And I feel like we were only, you know, getting started good into our integration and we had to go into that mode. And you ask, what would I do differently? I would say that in general, there's no way you can over communicate in a scenario like that. And there's no way you could over communicate in person, particularly. And I would, if I had to do it over again, or if I could do it over again, particularly if I knew what was coming, mm-hmm. you know, you would definitely, I would have been doing nearly nothing else but being in front of the people and trying to tell them, you know, what we were doing. Because I do think, insight, some of the people caught up in that integration in a different scenario, the reduction of the business probably couldn't tell the difference between what was happening to them. You know, mm-hmm. people who stayed or people who, who mm-hmm. went with, or went away from the company. So very challenging, fun, sad process in many different ways when you roll COVID into it. But, you know, we don't want to be looking backwards and we don't want to be worried about water under the bridge. But, you know, I just, if, I, if there's anybody on our team listening to this interview, I just, I would just say is that, you know, let's keep as a group and as an industry, let's just, let's move forward. And we're rebuilding our sector right now. You know, the business is rebounding strongly across the, across the unit. We got, we're adding a lot of people to our company again, we're calling back a many, a many people who, who left during the downturn. So things are, things are moving. And, and, and that last thing I'd say about any merger is that neither culture will be the culture of the new company. It's going to be a blended culture, and that's a good thing. I saw Slumberjay, we, we did so many in my career. Each time we did it, it changed the culture of the company for the better. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can say which company's culture is it going to be. It's going to be the new company. The new one. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I remember even through all of COVID of last year, thinking the hardest job I think out of everybody right now is the CEO of any of these companies, whether you're even oil and gas or restaurants or just business owners as at the end of the day, everyone looks up to you to what's going on, the reassurance and just knowing that, you know, you have to kind of keep a straight face and put a happy face on a shove for your people when you know, like, everything's kind of falling apart right under you. So that must have been a very challenging year. So good for you for, you know, kind of just keeping the company through all of it. And like you said, we're moving forward and things are obviously picking back up and things are good, but that must have been a really hard year. Well, it was, but I would say is that the CEO's job not any harder than any one of us. We all had uncertainties and we got through it as a group and no CEO could do it without the team he has around him. And I, and blessed with a very, very good one that's very, very deep. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion and all that. So obviously you worked for Summer for many, many years. You probably saw this years ago because I know they've had that. We want X amount of women by 2020 for many years. So you've, you've for sure have been around all these 
quotas or even just visions of what they would like the future to look like by trying to bring more women into the, you know, this male dominated industry. How, how do you feel about, you know, I think across the bigger companies, this is a big focus for their investors. And just because they are a big company and they're kind of in the spotlight, what would you say on the smaller scale, like wireline frack companies that don't have that many women compared to, you know, the big ones, how do you handle trying to promote women without quotas where it doesn't feel like just she's getting a promotion because she's a woman versus she earned it? Like, you know, cause that's a really hard kind of fine line to walk on. Yeah, look, thank you for that question because I consider it very important, not the least of which reason being that I got two young daughters that are professionals in the sector. And I hope that their organizations are taking, you know, this question into account as well. But, you know, I I believe this and and I hope that this, you know, you two would give me feedback about it. But I believe the roadmap for success, you know, for both genders and really all nationalities very similar, you know, but companies, you got to make sure, you know, that we got the right corporate policies in, in consideration of the obvious differences between male and female and the cultural differences and influences, the things you got to deal with, raising, raising a family and, and all those things have to be considered in the policies of the company, you know, and, and, you know, you, you guys are in that process today and Jamie gives me good feedback and we're going to incorporate it in our company. That's the way we have to, to morph, you know, the way we do things. But, I think most motivated people, you know, they, they want to, I think, achieve success in a rent on an arena that has a level playing field. That's the people that I know. And I think most companies' entire succession process, how you build in people for the future, begins, you know, with the recruiting process so that you have the right numbers of people coming into the organization that could drop into the company's training and development programs and you can then, you know, shepherd the entire group in a manner that creates opportunities for people to take advantage of. And I think during the downturns that you go through, sometimes companies lose the bench strength mm-hmm. that they ordinarily would have. And then the succession planning process gets off track a bit. But my personal belief is that the foundations of that begin with recruiting and then making sure that everybody has clear objectives around what to achieve and got clear feedback from management so they know what they can do to further enhance their value add to the team organization. And I, I think that's just basically blocking and tackling of the process. But when you think about smaller companies, you know, I don't think that we've done a good enough job of bringing in the right numbers of people in the entry level positions so that you can begin that process. I don't think, I don't know of any nationality or, or any gender that needs any special attention. I know there's a lot, I'm not the smartest person in my family. And I think that that's probably true in most every company. And I'd say is that, that we have to stick to that a bit, mm-hmm. but I've watched a number of people and you mentioned summer's day. I've, I've watched a number of examples where I've, seen, for example, a female that would decide to slow down the moves that she was making to allow herself to gain a little more learning and talent in a particular role because she knew what she was trying to achieve. And the system maybe was pushing it too fast. It would have ultimately led to, you know, a difficult position down the road. And I've seen in the other, the other example. So I think it's got to be a mutual communication between 
first having the process for it to work, and then having the supervisor employee relationship that allows that to be that mentoring process to work and drive and move people through the organization. So, you know, when you mentioned small companies, Slumberjays, Halliburton's, they've been the feedstock for a lot of positions in companies our size all over all over the US, all over the world, really. And I think that, you know, these big companies have had the same challenges we've had. And I think that companies like ours have to be more responsible about developing our own people to the next level. And these are the kind of things that, you know, we want to mature in, in the sector. I think we got upside to do that. And I think other companies do as well. That's such a great answer, Robert. And I really like where you pointed out the mentorship part and understanding what the employee wants and needs are too, because when they get stuck in that quota system, they are just kind of being promoted to the next job and maybe they don't actually want that yet but yet because that you have to meet some certain metric you know that's already happening and actually be detrimental to the employee and then vice versa so thank you for sharing that lastly we definitely want to ask you a question you know regarding ESG especially you know I know next year is working really hard to develop you know something specific for North America to help with you know all of the components that we're dealing with right now on that side when it comes to emissions so can you give us a little bit on your thoughts on the future of North America and where you see, you know, ESG being the biggest part of the development of, you know, us continuing as a oil field in this area in North America? Well, first I'd say, thanks for that question. First I'd say is that, you know, you can see what somebody believes by how they vote with their feet. I left a global company to come focus on U.S. land, North America, you know, in the frack completion arena because I know that the U.S. has world-class assets, world-class reservoirs in both oil and gas, and it's going to be an important component of meeting, you know, global supply. We are and always will be a macro supply-demand-driven sector, but as you mentioned, there are more and more influences on the business, whether it be the political aspects, the ESG aspects of reducing our environmental footprint, all things that that they're good. And each company really has to have a strategy around how to navigate those things. You know, next year, as you point out, for example, is we're helping our customers cost-effectively reduce their carbon footprint Mm -hmm. by simply making it easy to use their own field gas to power the fuel-intensive operations around frack. You know, frack fleet to burn... 12 or, you know, consume $12 million worth of diesel on it in, in an average year, easy. And if you look at what the economy benefited from in the U.S. moving from coal to natural gas for power generation, think about what's happening in the frack sector now is moving from diesel to natural gas in, in, in a pretty big way is going to be a big contribution from our sector in reducing carbon footprint. So, you know, I think every every company has a, a role to play there, and we're doing that. But I think the macro environment, you know, here in North America has got a bright future. I mean, I know that not everybody doesn't hear that all the time, but I'll tell you this. The only gas resources here, you got Marcellus Utica in the east where you have such a, a powerful gas reservoir. You got all the oil resources and associated gas resources in the Permian. We have underspent global capex 
for a number of years, and the supply side for petroleum production has been more resilient than most would think. But that doesn't mean it's going to be that way for forever. And I think many more people are becoming to realize that that we got a case coming, even at flat kind of demand levels, where we're going to have to get back to work. And when that happens in a big way, you can come and get that production response very quickly in the U.S. And there's tens of thousands of wells you have to build drilled in the future. So and you, might, you might notice I had to give a speech sometimes to my daughters because they were young and get ready to get in the industry. You hear some of the things in the press. It just seems that there's some views that are out there that seem to be driven by other motives, whatever, whatever they may be. But I, for one, and my family and our company, I'm very pleased to be a part of this sector in this part of the world. And we're going to be a player and we're helping bring affordable, reliable, you know, energy to the rest of the world. The West, we've, we've enjoyed it for a long time. There's still a lot of people in other parts of the world who need access to these things. I am extremely honored and no way worry about the future of opportunity here. Thank you, Robert. I love the whole sum of that you've that you stated there and just not being a North America company and the experience that you've had here really shows, you know, in your development of just understanding the business and understanding the future. So for that coming from you, I, I mean, everybody listening, you know, I definitely would say that there is a future here and there's always going to be one and we're doing all the things needed to, you know, help not just emissions, but help, you know, that future for our future kids, children, you know, everything. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've been really wanting you on for a while and your story is just amazing. And we appreciate you sharing everything with us. Well, like I said, I'm honored and you two are doing a great job. I'm so impressed. When I first saw it, I was just going, wow, you guys just came up with this idea and you, and you taking action, taking initiative. That's great to see. And I'm, thanks for my little bitty contribution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. <laughs>